0: It's Monday on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We always have good stuff to talk about on a Monday, and today is no different. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Courtney Astafi, wrapping up her period, filling in for Laura Johnston, who's away one more day. Thank you, Courtney, for doing this. I hope you've had a good time.
1: It's been great.
0: I I think we're going to figure out a way to make you a regular presence as the as a fill in. So we'll see. Welcome, Uh (laughs) Let's begin. The immediate reaction to Donald Trump's endorsement of J.D. Vance was that it would help Vance rise in the crowded race for the Republican nomination for senator from Ohio. But reporter Andrew Tobias noticed some unexpected developments from the endorsement. Lisa, what are they?
2: Well, it's interesting that in the wake of this endorsement, that uh, the response from GOP leaders in in Ohio and elsewhere was pretty measured. I mean, nobody was terribly enthusiastic about it other than the Vance campaign itself. But um, I think if you look a little bit deeper, I, I think this went over like a lead balloon, quite frankly. I mean, look, J.D. Vance was the only former never-Trumper in the group of Senate hopefuls, you know, so he was the only one who said bad things about Trump. He's the last one I certainly would have thought would have been picked, but the only one that seemed pretty enthusiastic was uh, Mike Gonadakis with the Ohio Right to Life. He says, this gets J.D. across the finish line, and his group, Ohio Right to Life, endorsed fans Shortly before Trump did, but then Vance came on a radio show. Cleveland talk show host Bob France says, "Well, a lot of the GOP is not happy, to be honest, but the endorsement could carry some weight before the May third primary." And he kind of ran Vance, you know, ran the gauntlet with Vance and you know asked him to talk about his former uh, opposition to Trump. I'm sure that was an interesting interview. Um, Columbiana County GOP Chair Dave Johnson, he's a Timken supporter. He was also a co-author of the letter that some uh, state Republicans circulated. They didn't ever send it, but they were trying to stop Trump's endorsement. And, he, uh, you know, Johnson said, well, folks who worked so hard for Trump's message feel betrayed. But he says the endorsement is probably good for Vance and maybe will result in a win.
0: Well, what's interesting to me about it is that it does position the Democrat to have a real chance to win because Mm -hmm. Vance's statements about Ukraine are reprehensible. I I don't care about the Ukraine, basically. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should do anything to help Ukraine. And I think most people, conservative or, or not, are watching what's happening in Ukraine and feeling terrible about it and feeling like we should care about Ukraine and something should be done. And so for him to make—and he, and he didn't just say, I don't care. I mean, he was so scornful right. of anybody who would. I think the Democrats, if they have a whiff of sense, will make, make hay on that. He also—I there. I mean, there are recordings of him saying terrible things about Donald Trump. I mean, compared him to Hitler— you know, right. it's 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 going to be hard to overcome that. I also think it's interesting that by endorsing Vance, you know, none of the other candidates that were seeking Trump's endorsement said, oh, if Donald Trump wants Vance, I'll get behind Vance because they never were as Trumpy as they said. They're all coming at him. Right. And so now they have a villain. They have a foil that they can go after in a big way. And so in the final two weeks, Vance has got an uphill battle. I don't know that it actually helps him. He put out his bogus poll saying, oh, look, I'm way ahead now, but you can't believe those polls.
2: Yeah, that poll was from the Protect Ohio Values Pack, which is a, a PAC that has supported Vance. And their poll shows, internal poll, shows that Vance has a seven point lead after Trump's endorsement and broke away from the pack. But they also said that only half the voters really know of this endorsement. And so this actually might gain steam and so it has room to grow but a january poll from the protect ohio values pack that was leaked it was an internal poll showed vance in fifth place and that the attack ads against him of which there are many even before the trump endorsement were working so you know and he's also gaining ground with moderates and liberals which i thought was interesting
0: yeah, we'll we'll have to see. I mean, Donald Trump was in Ohio over the weekend, and he said, yes, I know. He said bad things about me. Lots of people said bad things about me, but they've all come around. Nothing makes Donald Trump happier than somebody who used to scorn him, who now believes in him, which is pretty much the entire Republican Party. <laughs> Check out Andrew Tobias' story on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much are we, meaning First Energy customers, getting back from the company to settle what the massive, corrupt First Energy-funded scandal cost us? Layla, we're going to get something. Well, it's unclear if we're going to see a cut
3: of this settlement money or not. The, the company's CEO told investors Friday that that First Energy reached a $37.5 million settlement to resolve four lawsuits filed by ratepayers who sued them over the House Bill 6 scandal. That's not a huge surprise because First Energy had told federal regulators months ago that it set aside the money to settle the suits. That's three in federal court and one in Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Court. But it's it's unclear whether the money will be spread out among the individual plaintiffs in the four cases or among First Energy's two million Ohio customers As of Friday, no settlement documents had been filed in the online court dockets of any of the lawsuits, and a spokesperson for the company declined to provide any details because they hadn't been filed in court yet. So, you know, we'll we'll wait to find out, but I mean, frankly, you know... $2 Two million into thirty-seven point five million is like eighteen bucks. So <laughs> that's not that much. And then take out the lawyers' fees. What you're left with, like a couple trips to Starbucks. Does it really
2: matter? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's the principle. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, right. As long as it's coming out of First Energy's pocket, I don't care. It does seem
0: wrong <laughs> that we get back less than they paid in bribes. You know, you would think that there'd be <laughs> yeah, a penalty right. that it's a multiplier of your bribery. Uh, But, well, they did pay a huge government fine, but still, they figure the rate payers are the ones that deserve something.
3: That's true. That's true. Today in
0: Ohio. How much money is Cleveland losing each year with its antiquated system of collecting fees from insurance companies for ambulance runs? Courtney, this was a pretty good story laying out why Cleveland is losing a big bunch of money.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it was some pretty interesting reporting. So, what Cleveland could be getting each year by by increasing the rates it charges insurance companies and and patients for ambulance runs could be anywhere just north of a million all the way up to 7 million depending on what you do with these rates and how you go after collections. So, you know, proponents of of raising ambulance rates say that this is This is a no-brainer. We've missed out since around 2004 of of routinely increasing ambulance rates to reflect inflation, just basic costs going up. You know, a, a city analysis from a couple years ago found that the city, by leaving this rate unchanged for the better part of two decades you know, it, it's it's hovering below peer cities. You know, ambulance costs in Cleveland can range from 350 to $500 under that long-standing rate. But you look at Columbus, the minimum they charge is 580 Cincinnati almost 1000 Pittsburgh $700. So Cleveland, you know, is essentially leaving money on the table here as it deals with ever-increasing costs for EMS service. Because their costs, like anything else, have continued to go up since these rates were set way back when, around 2004.
0: If somebody doesn't have insurance, do they have to pay this out of pocket?
1: Well, so, so that is a potential question mark here. Um, there are some options when it comes to how Cleveland bills and pursues balances after insurers pay their share, or for folks who are uninsured. And proponents of the change, such as the EMS Union and uh, Councilman Charles Slife, say that you wouldn't have to necessarily go after the balance and um, you wouldn't necessarily have to lean on individuals to pay what their insurers, uh, you know, sent them what their insurance insurers did not cover.
0: Did you get the feeling that that might be why it hasn't been raised, is because they didn't want to put more of an onus on people who don't have insurance and how to pull it out of pocket? You know, it was a big thing with Frank Jackson taking care of the least of us.
1: Yeah, that was definitely the sense of, of, That was the approach the last administration took um but i I didn't really get a sense of its position on those billing options that would perhaps lessen the burden for some folks so i'm not really sure what went into his calculus to keep these rates the same throughout his tenure but proponents say there's some wiggle room there where it wouldn't necessarily hurt folks
0: although would it be legal to just charge insurance companies I mean if you're charging a fee for a service can you just waive it for a class of customers I'm not sure you could pull that off fire the insurance company wait, wait, wait a minute so we're the only ones that pay it's a it seems like there's there's a bit of a dicey nature to this I guess you could always make uh, a play where people below a certain income level that you you do that for them but I, I don't know it seems uh, it seems like this was probably done to, to avoid having people go broke being taken to the hospital and the, um, this could change things. I, I can't wait to see how they solve this because I would expect that there'd be some complaining if they have two different classes of payees. Good reporting, good story. Check it out on cleveland.com. It's Today in Ohio. Everyone knew this would be a big year for campaign spending in Ohio, but I don't think anyone thought it would hit the heights we've seen just with the Republicans. Lisa, let's talk the numbers.
2: Yeah, the money's been flying here in the Buckeye State, a lot of it out of the own candidates' pockets. Uh, So far in the uh, Republican Senate primary, spending has reached $47.5 million. That's both from candidates and political action committees that that have supported them. These statistics are coming from medium buying and they're predicting that this race will hit 60 million before it's all over. And that would rank like number two as the most expensive in the United States right now. $30 million of that 47 and a half is candidates own spending. So the rest, the balance would be coming from PACs. Uh, Mike Gibbons, Leads the pack in spending. He spent over $11 million on ads and $16.8 million of his own money on the campaign. So Gibbons' spending represents 47% of the self-funding of all of the candidates. Surprisingly, Matt Dolan is number two. He spent six and a half million on ads from his own pocket. That's 29% of the overall total. Jane Timken and Josh Mandel are tied, you know, with about four million apiece. And then J.D. Vance has only spent about a million of his own money, but he's backed by a a pretty powerful pack.
0: If you had $11 million to spare, is this how you would spend it?
2: (laughs) I would not. I
0: think about it. He's probably not going to win. And he has squandered $11 million. I I just, it's staggering. And it also, the message is, Unless you're loaded with cash, you can't run for office. How is that representative government?
2: Right. And the the Medium Buying founder, Nick Everhart, said that this self-funding phenomenon may become more common as we move forward. So it it might be something that gains speed. And he said, actually, after the Trump endorsement in this race, will money matter at all? And that remains to be seen.
0: What about people like me who really never watch commercial television? I never see ads. Oh, God. The only time I've ever seen a political ad is when I watch things like the Super Bowl. So they're not reaching me. They're not reaching my wife. I just... How do they reach people... Who have pulled away from commercial television?
2: I social media would be my guess. I know my, that my Facebook feed yeah, has Facebook. been loaded with at well. I think there. I get more Chantel Brown and Nina Turner ads than than any others. But that's probably because of the algorithm has figured out I'm a liberal. But uh, yeah, the amount <laughs> <laughs> the amount of self funding in this race is thirty six million dollars. That's f- by far, the highest among GOP primary races nationwide. The second place is Pennsylvania. That's the, the uh, race with Mehmet Oz, and that's at $24 million of self-funding. So, yeah, we're leading the way in rich people's buying elections. It's amazing. Good stuff.
0: It's today in Ohio. What's the biggest Cleveland journalism blunder of all time? Layla, you get to have some fun. We gave people a smile this weekend. <laughs>
2: Yeah,
3: I'm so glad you gave me this one to talk about because I've been hearing about this news in the newsroom for nearly 20 (laughs) years, but until now there was never any evidence of it because it doesn't exist in our archives. So the story I had heard a hundred times is that when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon in 1969 and famously said, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, the lead of the front page story that ran in the plane dealer reported that quote as one small step for me, one giant leap for man. Of course, that is a mortifying error for a newsroom, blundering a quote on the most significant human achievement to date. But as you said in your letter from the editor column over the weekend, it appears that error only appeared in the early run of the special edition of the paper and that it was corrected by the final run that was committed to the archives and the microfilm. So no evidence ever existed of it. And the explanation, as you pointed out in your column, was that the medical reporter at the time, Fraser Kent, and the science writer, William D. McCann, who were reporting from Mission Control Center in Houston, had received an advanced copy from NASA of what the astronauts had planned to say and that they built a story around that, then No one corrected it based on the actual quote before the special edition went to press. But then it turned out that Armstrong later said there was no advanced copy of the quote sent to NASA. So that theory was debunked. And still, whether the mistake had really occurred at all in the paper or was just newsroom lore seemed in question for all these years, because except for some grainy copy that someone had once seen, no one had ever verified it in person. And then, thanks to our late great sports editor Roy Hewitt, Hewitt, the mis- the mystery has been solved. And Chris, do you want to regale us on that part of the yeah, story? He, you know, I used to have
0: a bunch of old front pages hanging in an office I had at the um, in the Plain Dealer building, and it, you know, he and it, they were from Philadelphia because that's where I live. So the shuttle exploding, things like that, Nixon resigning. And he remembered this, so he was clearing out his attic. I guess found a bunch of old newspapers, some from Philadelphia, and brought them in in a box. And I, you know, I've been clearing out. I don't, I don't really collect old newspapers. I don't really want them. Um, but you know, he he gave them to me, and he's a good guy. He Wanted to make sure they landed somewhere, so I stuck them in a file drawer. This is probably I don't know three or four, or five years ago. Well, we're moving. You know, Friday was our last day at 1801 Superior, so I had to go clear stuff out. So I started paging through the papers, and I my heart stopped when I saw the moonwalk headline from the Plain Dealer, and I thought, "Oh, is this the edition, or is this the the later one?" And it was. And there it was, the quote right there. One final step for me. Um, Ted Dian, in his sense, said that he saw a copy. Uh, plastered on a wall in a tavern in Lake County years ago, uh, but but he didn't have a copy. And this is it. It happened. So I almost wrote this in, in tongue in cheek as a correction, fifty-two years later, because I don't think they ever corrected it. I looked and I couldn't find it. But I. But they just pretended it didn't happen. Yes. So, but instead, you know, I keep hearing people. They want some mirth, They want some things to smile about. And so I wrote about this in the terms of the biggest of all uh, newsroom bloopers in in a chain of them. But the one that had people really coming back to me saying it made them laugh out loud. And I've been laughing about this for 20 years. We ran a photo once of Donna Shalala in the in the presidential administration walking with Ronald McDonald, and in the cut line it said Donna Shalala right, and it was just like he's in full clown regalia. But just in case you don't know who, you know, the, which yeah. one and, she is,
3: she's the one on the right. And in
0: <laughs> in on the online version of the column, I included the photo because the visual of yeah, it, it is, so is hilarious. So, so I heard from people that just said. I love this made me laugh out loud and then people were coming back with other errors it is astounding to me they got that wrong i I mean it just that that is but from now on anytime we make a mistake we can say well at least we didn't blow the moonwalk. It's like the perfect. Anytime I, Layla, that story's all wrong. Yeah, 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 but at least I didn't blow the moonwalk. It's like the get-out-of-jail-free card of all get-out-of-jail-free cards. Courtney, bucket, You'll use it plenty of times. Sweet.
1: I'm hanging on to that.
0: In your long career. It's Today in Ohio. We talked previously about the hurdles Steve Dettelbach faces in getting confirmed as the head of ATF now that Joe Biden has nominated him. But reporter Adam Farise has talked to a bunch of people who know him. Courtney, what do they say?
1: Yeah, so like you said, you know, this position, ATF head is is, is hard to get a confirmation for, right? There's only been one person permanently filling that job receiving confirmation. Since it was a confirmable position, it was made into that position confirmable position in 2006 but you know folks who know steve dedelbach say that he's a good he's a good choice for this job now he has his distractors but but those in in favor of him you know getting this position say that he's you know very detail oriented hands-on when it comes to tough cases you know a good work ethic said his predecessor at the u.s attorney's office carol Rendon. And, you know, they say he has the makings for this position. And it, it is worth noting that some of the folks that that Adam talked to really framed him as, you know, a Washington, D.C. guy in the mix, someone who would be ripe for this kind of job. He was tight with people in the Obama administration, including Tom Perez, who went on to be DNC chair. Um, and he also worked for Vermont Senator Pat Leahy, who's still chairing the Senate Judiciary Committee before which this ATF confirmation will go. But there's some detractors, too. Um, one of them is Dave Yost, the Republican against whom Dettelbach ran for Ohio AG. He said Dettelbach's good guy, but this is the wrong job. He actually criticized uh, Dettelbach for his last two years at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Northern District because his gun charges uh, declined from when he was holding the position earlier. So I thought that was an interesting criticism from a from a Republican saying you know, he didn't go after guns enough when he was when he was US attorney. But generally um, it seems like there's some support. You know, there are some drawbacks here in, in 2014, he was he was under consideration to be Loretta Lynch's number 2 in the US Attorney General's office. But pushback came from the rep, from the organization that represents black attorneys in Northeast Ohio. And pushback also came from Samaria Rice, the, the mother of Tamir Rice, who has criticized Edelbach for years for not pursuing charges against Tamir Skiller. So there's a little bit of give and take here and we'll have to see how it unfolds.
0: What what's sad is this will not be a uh, uh confirmation process that's about Steve Dettelbach at all. It's going to be about Mm. polarization. So the people on the right will be throwing everything they can at him just to embarrass the Biden administration and the people on the left will champion him. Uh, Anybody that has known Dettelbach over the years knows he's a decent guy. You could disagree with some of his decisions. We clearly have, but nobody can question that he's about public service, but it doesn't matter. Because this isn't going to be about Steve Dettelback at all. It's going to be about politics. It's today in Ohio. Another political race in Ohio is generating some big campaign funds. Lisa, you're the campaign fund expert today. (laughs) What's the latest round of fundraising in the battle for Chief Justice of Ohio?
2: So, Democrat Jennifer Bruner is the is leading the pack or leading the race for uh, money raised. She's raised two hundred and seventy nine two hundred thousand two hundred four dollars. So, repre- or repre- I'm sorry, Ugh, it's a Monday. Republican Sharon Kennedy has raised about fifty thousand dollars less than that. She's raised two twenty seven eight hundred eighty seven, but Kennedy has more cash on hand. She spent about $95,000 so far on her campaign, but she still has 667000 in her campaign war chest. Jennifer Bruner has spent a little less, about $70,000, but her balance is about half of what Kennedy has at $327,767. So kind of interesting to see. Uh, Bruner donors are mostly uh, from unions, uh, PACs that represent unions like the Ohio AFL CIO, public school employees, the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 18. These are her individual donors. And also the Ohio Association for Justice PAC has given her money. Uh, Kennedy donors, uh, her big ones are the Ohio Trucking Association PAC and the Columbiana County Republican Party Judicial Account, which gave her $26,000. And then a lot of uh, uh, individual donors that were former and current state lawmakers.
0: Yeah, and the Ohio Chamber of Commerce has said it's going to give her a bunch of money. That I can't imagine that this isn't going to be millions and millions before it's over because so much is at stake here, as we've seen through the gerrymandering battle. And in past races for the Supreme Court, we've seen some heavy-duty spending. I think the the bulk of that will happen once the primary is over because they're running without primaries and they start facing off in the general after next Tuesday. We are getting close to Election Day. Uh, It is interesting, though, that Bruner raised more in the most recent period. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody would have expected Mm -hmm. that. Why would the Truckers Association be doing that? I don't quite understand that one.
2: Well, they're supporting Kennedy.
0: Yeah. But, but yeah, I don't
2: know why. That's, who knows?
0: I don't know. Maybe it's the truckers that were doing the caravan all over the country. (laughs) It's today in Ohio. What did our new stimulus watch reporter find? find when he looked into how a lot of cities are spending their bounty of stimulus dollars from the federal government. Layla, it's so nice to be able to say our new stimulus report, stimulus watch reporter.
3: I agree. And I, and I find this story really fascinating because local governments have had this money in their coffers for quite some time now, and we've seen them struggling to decide the highest and best uses for it. We've seen some questionable decisions so far with the creation of slush funds or some city councils voting to give themselves raises. We've seen some administrations scramble to to earmark as much as they can before their successor has a chance to get their mitts on it, and we've we've seen the opposite of that, too. We've seen complete paralysis where months and months will pass without any decisions at all, while their community keeps suffering because changes in federal regulations leave cities confused about how they can spend those federal stimulus dollars. So now, our new Stimulus Watch reporter, Lucas DePrilli, reports that the, the, the trend we're seeing is of governments spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on these outside consultants to help guide the expenditure or the management of this money because it has just been an unprecedented flood of resources that has left them feeling completely overwhelmed Two consultants that Lucas found have been showing up really frequently in government contracts throughout Ohio communities is Ohio-based law firm Bricker and Eckler. And then this international company called Guidehouse LLP, which is a subsidiary of PricewaterhouseCoopers. Guidehouse was created, it seems, to provide consulting services to the public sector around complex systems. And I found it funny, their tagline is, Outwit complexity. So I'm imagining that they are just raking in the ARPA cash across America right now. But, you know, for example, Cleveland Heights is paying Guidehouse two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to oversee distribution of their ARPA money. And they said that they faced such deep budget cuts during the pandemic. So they decided to go this route instead of adding capacity to their own staff to do it. And I imagine that that is just the case everywhere. And that's why, you know, cities are finding themselves in this in this situation where they're they're deciding to go with the consultant rather than adding to their own staff to handle to handle these decisions or, or this management of this huge windfall but, of money. but So just interesting, interesting uh, but trend. But I did,
0: I think it was Lorraine City where they said, you oh. know, look, we got a, we got a, our law person, the director of law, whoever it was, we've got our other financial people. We, we can figure this out and we're giving it a good review. I mean, y- y- are all are these governments really lacking in the expertise to, to basically follow the federal law? I mean, the law's not that confusing, what you can spend it on. Why do you have to pay consultants to do it?
3: That's a great question. I mean, a lot of cities are choosing to go it alone if they have the right people in place to do it. Some don't have the in-house capability. Um, I think that, uh, you know, what we were seeing, right, you know, toward the end of the year, we were noticing that the federal guidelines were changing so frequently that, and, and quite dramatically too, that a lot of governments were, were finding it hard to settle upon what they were gonna do with their money. Because it was like, you know, you make a plan and then it's upended by the sudden change in the guidelines. And so I could see how you would need somebody to be, you know, watchdogging that stuff for you. But if you don't have the capability in-house to do it, you might need to look elsewhere. But, you know, yeah, some of the cities are saying, no, we've got this. Um, and I I get uh, my read
0: on this is a stunning lack of creativity in our elected leaders. They, They get this big block of one time money that can transform lives, can transform their communities. And I can't figure out how to spend it. What's wrong with that picture? It just—this is the chance to dream. This is the chance to do big things. Our editorial roundtable over the weekend—members of the editorial board did just that. Everybody dreamed, except for Ted Diardon, who said, "Basically, I believe in slush funds." Blew my mind. (laughs) But but that's—this is the time to dream, and they're not dreaming. Right, right. You're 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 right. Oh,
3: Courtney, yeah, I just wanted to to hop
1: in there. I mean, I think. not necessarily defending it, but I think the argument coming from the cities who have retained this outside council is this is once in a generation money. If we mess up on these dynamic changing rules, then we got to pay it all back. Like, right. I, I think they see it as an insurance policy so they're not misspending and having to pay the federal government back millions.
2: Yeah, I would agree. With okay.
0: That. Voice of reason. It's today in Ohio. That's going to wrap it up for a Monday. We didn't get to recycling, Courtney. I'm sorry. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.